You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you who are watching us by way of video, want to welcome you. Those of us who are watching us online, want to welcome you as well. I want to say welcome to Scotts Hill, but also welcome to May. May 1st is today, and we're moving into a new season in our lives. We are gearing up for all purposes for the summer. We're moving towards that. May 1st is kind of a reminder of that. Things are going to start warming up. Kids are going to be out of school. And most of us are going to be thinking in terms of vacation, which is coming soon. We know that the end of this month, Memorial Day, begins the beach season for us in this area. And a lot of people are already thinking and making plans to go somewhere. Now, according to statistics, 52% of Americans are planning to go on a vacation vacation this summer. How many of you are here are planning on vacating this area and going somewhere with your family? Raise your hand. All those who plan to vacate this summer. All right. That's not even 52% of you, but that's quite a few of you. 48% of us are going to stay in the area and we're going to do what's called a staycation. How many of you are planning on staycating this summer? A lot of you are planning on staying here. Now, there's a difference between the two, obviously, between vacation and staycation. And the obvious is that of the finances that may be involved. You can define vacation as a specific period of leisure and recreation spent away from home and traveling abroad. In other words, this is the opportunity for you to vacate your home, vacate your community, vacate your family, vacate everything that's normal in your life and go somewhere, pay a lot of money for it, and be there for a week, maybe two weeks if you can. So it's getting away from here. That's vacation. Staycation is a little bit different. It's an extended period of leisure and recreation spent at home and involving day trips to local attractions. In other words, you stay here. You enjoy everything that you have at your disposal, the beach, the community, all of your friends, your relatives, your bed and your house, and get to stay here and plan some time together as a family. Now, we're going to be talking about this topic of staycation because while we may vacate, the majority of our time spent is going to be at home with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, in our community. And we thought this would be a great time to think about some ways that we can be spiritually refreshed as we come into the summer months. So our goal for this series is a time to be spiritually refreshed during and beyond the summer months. So we want to take the summer months to look at some ways that as believers, as followers of Christ, We can be spiritually refreshed during this time, not just for the summer, but to use the summer as a springboard to lead us in a deeper walk with the Lord and a deeper relationship with one another. So in these next four weeks, we're going to look at some ways that we can be spiritually refreshed as individuals and as family. Next week, we're going to look at how to reconnect with our families. Since it's Mother's Day, we're going to honor moms next week, but we're going to talk about how do we reconnect with families? How do we enjoy our time 
from this point forward as we build deeper relationships. Then in week three, we're going to look at how to rediscover our community. We're going to look at all kinds of ways and opportunities for us to reconnect with our community, people in our community, and use that as a springboard moving forward beyond the summer months. And then week four, we're going to talk about how to re-engage in life's rhythms. Summer's going to come to an end, but life keeps going. And so how do we re-engage in all of these areas? So these are the things we're going to be talking about in the next three weeks. But today, we're going to begin where most people look forward to when they go on a vacation or a staycation. We're going to look at a time to reclaim rest. A time to reclaim rest. Because most of the time, when we go on vacation, we want to move away from the regular routines of life. We just need to rest. We need to get away from the job. We need to get away from maybe all the the pressures and the stresses of our lives. We need to rest. But if there's ever a time where God's people need to rest and ever a culture where it needs to rest, it is now. One of my my favorite writers, and I want to say one of my favorite, a guy that I'd followed for many years is John Ortberg. He's a pastor. He's written a number of numerous books. He was involved in a church in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, which was one of the most significant mega churches in the United States. Um, And as he was serving at Willow Creek, there as a teaching pastor, he was caught up into all the mega church hype and all the activities that happen in a mega church. He was caught up into that vortex of stress and insanity. He felt like he was just losing his way because he was so busy with ministry. So he called his mentor, Dallas Willard, who is a professor at the University of Southern California, but was also a very, very strong believer. Dallas Willard was most known for his walk with Jesus and the simplicity of his walk and his accountability in that. So John calls him up. He says, listen, I'm so stressed. I'm so worked out. He says, I need to understand one thing. Can you answer this to me? How do I become the man of God that he wants me to be? And Willard just pauses for a moment. And then after a few seconds of pause, he says to John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John thought, man, that's good. He wrote it down. These were the days before Twitter. If he'd have done this in Twitter, he'd have broke the internet. So he writes this down. Then he says, okay, and then what? And there's another long pause. And Dallas Willard said, that's it. That's all there is. If you do not understand eliminating hurry, then your spiritual life will become desolate. Then he says it again. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Corey Ten Boom put it this way. She said, if the devil cannot make you sin, he will make you busy. Because both of them have the same effect. Sin and busyness disconnects you from God from others, and from yourself. Carl Jung, who is a Christian psychologist, very, very godly man, wrote this. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Now, let's be honest. We live in a culture that is in a hurry. We live in a culture that's constantly built on speed. We live in a culture where a badge of honor is busyness, and hurried lifestyles. 
Ask people. Go ahead and ask them. How, how are you doing? See somebody you haven't seen in a while. How are things going? Oh, man, it's just crazy. I, I'm just running wide open. I'm burning the candle at both ends. I'm busy, 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 busy. There's a person, every time I see her, I ask her, how's your life? I'm just crazy. It's running wide open. I can't seem to slow down. Always. And we wear that as though it's a badge of honor. And we think that if we can just hurry, if we can run through life, the one of the greatest marks of effectiveness in our culture is to be hurried. Everybody's in a hurry. Parents are in a hurry with small kids. Middle uh, uh, empty nesters are in a hurry. Retired people are in a hurry. Your barista's in a hurry. The CEO's in a hurry. Your kids are in a hurry. College students are in a hurry. Everybody is in a hurry. And here's the problem. We think that if it's slow, there's something wrong with it. I want you to think about this. If a person is seen to have an IQ, we call them what? Slow. If you go to a restaurant and the service is bad, we say it's slow. You go to a movie and the plot drags on, you say, well, that movie is what? Slow. And we think slow is a negative term in our culture. Matter of fact, all you have to do is look at the dictionary. Merriam-Webster says this. He says, slow, mentally dull, stupid, naturally inert or sluggish, lacking in readiness, promptness, or willingness. Can you hear that? We're living in a culture where slow is bad and fast is good. But then you look at the life of Jesus and you take the principles that Jesus taught and you look at the way he modeled his life. He takes what our culture says is good and he turns it on its head. It's completely upside down. And what we find that Jesus is teaching us is the opposite is true. Hurry is of the devil. Slowness is of Jesus. Let me put it this way. When you read through the pages of the New Testament, you find that we are described as having a relationship with God, and here's how it is. We, we, we are described as walking with God. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say that we run with him. It doesn't say that we are at a feverish pace just trying to keep up with him. We walk with him. Walk is slow. Walk is intentional. Walk gives us the opportunity to glean and to take in everything in the presence that Jesus wants us to have. We're called to walk with him. I love the way John Ortberg later writes this. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And we will run through life in such a hurry that we miss what God wants to teach us. So where do we go? If we want to slow down, who do we listen to? We cannot go to a TED talk. We cannot go to Forbes magazine. We can't go to some cool podcast that might be out there. We need to go to the master teacher himself. We need to go to the one who taught truth with every spoken word. We need to go to the greatest developer of people and disciple maker that has ever been known, the Lord Jesus himself. So this morning, I want us to look at three verses. 
I want you to take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. In these three verses, Jesus encapsulates for us the simple principle of rest. And I want to walk us through this, and I'm going to give you some principles today that are completely heretical to our culture. I'm going to give you some principles today and some disciplines that are going to go against the very flesh of your own heart. I'm going to give you some things today that if you want to rest, these are absolutely necessary for us to understand. This is one of my favorite Bible passages that Jesus teaches. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I want you to just take a deep breath. Ready? Listen to what he's saying and the simplicity of it. Matter of fact, I don't want you to just hear it. I want you to say it. So I want you to say it with me. Whether you're here or you're watching on video, I want you to say this with me. You ready? I want you to say it out loud. Read the screen as I lead us. One, two, three. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me show you some obvious things of this scripture. Number one, it's an invitation. Jesus is calling us to come to him. You won't rest. It won't be found in anyone else. It won't be found in any kind of principles other than the person of Jesus himself. He's calling us to come to him. It's an invitation. Secondly, it's an invitation for everyone who is weary. It's an invitation for the single mom who's struggling. It's an invitation for the construction worker who's working late hours now that the sun is going down later. It's a, it's a, it's a call to doctors and nurses and first responders. It's a call to everyone who's busy. He's saying, you come to me. And it's a promise. I will give you rest, but not just physical rest. He says, I'll give you rest for your souls because the greatest thing we need in our culture today is not just a physical rest and leisure time away. We need rest for the depths of who we are. And so he says, these are some promises. This is what I'm inviting you to. But then he tells us how to get there. He uses a word in this passage that is completely strange to our 21st century culture. He uses the word yoke. He says, take my yoke. And we're like, what is a yoke? How does that even apply to me? Well, let me just tell you what a yoke is. In the Old Testament and New Testament times, a yoke is this wooden apparatus that was attached to two animals at the base of their neck, on their shoulders, that united them together to do a singular work. And a yoke would be put on two oxen, or two bulls, or two cows, or two horses, but never on two cats. So it would always be in a case like that. And so what it did, it lightened the load, and it enabled them to work together as a team. That's a yoke. But also in this culture, in Jesus' day, all the rabbis had what was considered a yoke. A yoke was their teaching. 
A yoke was their lifestyle. The Pharisees had a yoke, but their yoke was so heavy and so legalistic and so burdensome that they could hardly carry their own yoke. And their students were expected to carry the yoke and the principles and the heaviness and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And it's no wonder people didn't like them. But Jesus has a yoke too. And for his disciples, it's his principles, but it's his lifestyle. And he's saying, you come after me and you take my yoke. But my yoke is easy. My yoke is easy. You come along with me and you partner with me and you share life along with me and we together walk through the most difficult, stressful times that you can imagine. And it will be filled with joy, it will be filled with peace, and it'll be filled with love. And so what Jesus is calling us to do is to follow his ways. So if we're gonna have rest, if we're gonna have rest, we have to follow the discipline of Jesus. There are four things that Jesus modeled in his life. And these are the four things that he's calling us to, which John Mark Comer calls the easy yoke. Or what Chuck Swindoll wrote about 26 years ago when he wrote his little book called Intimacy with the Almighty. There are four disciplines that I want us to look at this morning, okay? So buckle in, not because we're in a hurry, Buckle in, here's why. Every discipline I'm about to list to you is contrary to this culture and your lifestyle. Every discipline I'm about to mention to you is hard because we are so foreign to it. Yet if you want to rest, here's the yoke of Jesus. How do we reclaim rest? Number one, Silence. You're already uncomfortable, aren't you? You're thinking he forgot his notes. Silence makes us uncomfortable. Our lives have nothing to do with silence, do they? We get up in the morning, we turn on radio, we turn on the television, we get into our car, we've got Spotify going, or we've got Cyrus going, we've got some kind of news station that's going 24-7, we get to work, we're listening to music, you even get in the elevator and there's music playing in the elevator. You go to the grocery store, it's playing. Everywhere we go, we're surrounded by noise, external noise all around us. And it's a constant barrage of noise. We are so accustomed to it that many of you can't sleep without white noise at night. Many of you pull up your devices and you play some kind of white noise to help you sleep. You know what I'm talking about. And some of you who are not as high tech, you still got the box fans in your room blowing all year to make noise so you can sleep. And what do you do? You wake up the next morning and we are surrounded by noise. In fact, do you know that they did a study with Microsoft and here's what they discovered? They said that 77% of people, when they're in an uncomfortable, silent situation where other people are around, they take out their phone. And this device right here isolates us from other people. This de device right here keeps us from being present in the moment. 
I went to get the oil change in my truck the other day and I went into the, the waiting room. And as I pulled into the waiting room, there's no music playing. There's about six or seven people in the small waiting room. I sit down and I'm looking around and not one person is looking at another person. Everybody's doing this the whole time. And I'm just sitting there and I left mine in a truck. I didn't know what to do. So I started talking. An extrovert in an introverted space is not a good thing. <laughs> because we always tell introverts, why don't you come out of your comfort zone and speak more? And they're saying, why don't you shut up and keep this place comfortable? And so here's what's happened. We, we, we don't like silence, do we? And yet here's the problem with noise. There's so much exterior noise that is going on that we become accustomed to listen to what everything in the world tells us rather than listening to God. And silence is a difficult discipline. Listen, the Lord Jesus modeled silence in his life. Jesus always demonstrated margin in his life for times of silence. Here's amazing. Look at the life of Jesus and you'll see it. Just through the book of Mark. Let me, get, let me illustrate it to you. In Mark chapter one, verses 12 and 13, Jesus has just been baptized. And after he's baptized, he comes out of the water. The spirit of God descends on him as a dove. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then it says the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. For a month and a half, Jesus was in the wilderness. Now, when we think wilderness, we think desert. The word actually means desolate place, lonely place. Get this, quiet place. For a month and a half, Jesus begins his ministry by going into a desolate place to be quiet. And it's at the end of that time that the enemy comes and tempts him. And the only thing that was there were animals and angels. No people, no external noise. He comes out of the wilderness, having defeated the enemy once he has been in silence, and then he launches into the most busiest day of his career as an itinerant gospel preacher. And then at the end of that day, he should be exhausted. And then the next morning, does he sleep in? No. Mark 1.35 says, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went to a, same word, desolate place. And there he prayed, a quiet place. He pulled himself away. And in the quietness of that place, he was able to shut off all the external noise, which was about to happen. And people were going to move to make him the king. The ministry continues. And we keep seeing the same thing. In Mark chapter six, the disciples are so busy that Jesus comes to him and he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Where? A lonely place, a quiet place. Let me tell you what Jesus regularly did every single day. He made margin to be silent. This is the son of God. This is the perfect human being, 100% man, 100% God. And yet what did he do? He carved time out of his day, every single day, to shut off the external noise of his life. If you wanna rest, it begins right here. If you wanna rest, the first thing you need to do is power down. 
Shut it off. Get to a place that's silent. I'm not talking about Spotify playing in the background. I'm not talking about going on a walk with your earbuds in, listening to a podcast. I'm talking about shutting, powering things down where there is no noise so we can get to the place where God wants us to be. I'm going to tell you, if you never do this, you will never understand true biblical rest. You see, silence turns off the external shouting of the world. C.S. Lewis, in his famous little satire work called The Screwtape Letters, it's, it's, a, it's about the senior demon called Screwtape who is talking to other demons and training them how to destroy the lives of Christians. And in there, Screwtape tells the other demons, he says that silence is the enemy to our cause. He says, we must make the world and the universe filled with noise. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. And Jesus says, no, power down, learn silence. Now that's tough, but it gets even harder. What's the second one? Solitude. Silence flows into solitude. Solitude and silence are different in these ways. Silence powers down the external voices. Solitude listens to the internal voices. And where solitude is not isolation, solitude is illumination. Solitude helps us to get to a place where we really deal with the questions of our soul, the anguish of our soul, the things that we struggle most with. With. Let me tell you what solitude is not. Solitude is not going to be the material that's going to be found in a book. It's not going to be the material that's going to be used in the sermon illustration. It's not going to be the material that you have conversations with with co-workers as you're around the water cooler and you're in the break room. These are the things that are the deep issues and the struggling things of your own soul that most of the time you don't want anybody to know. But let me tell you, until you turn off the external sound, you will never deal with the internal chatter. And the reason many people don't want to silence it because the sound of the world keeps them from dealing with the truth of what they struggle with. I love the way Chuck Swindoll says it. He says, this is the furnace of transformation. This is where God gets us alone and we sit in silence and we listen to the issues of our own heart. This is where we tune in with him and we say, listen, there's something wrong here. It's in solitude that I deal honestly with the issues of my own soul, the questions, the concerns, the anxieties, the depressions, all the things that bother me. I am to a place where I'm listening and tuned in to what God has to say. I love the way Henry Newman Newman puts it, he says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. And most of the times of our life, it's not the fact that God is absent. It's the fact that we are not present because we're too busy listening to everything around us that we refuse to listen to what real things are happening in me. David wrote about this thousands of years earlier. In Psalm 139, David says this in verses one through four. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me, known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And then in verses 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's what he's saying. You need to be still. You need to power down. You need to listen. You need to let God search your hearts. And you know what you end up doing? You begin to identify those troubled areas in your life and then you begin to exterminate them. And you know what God does? He does surgery on your soul. See, our greatest need is just not the physical and emotional. It is our souls. And it's when we get to that point. Let me tell you, if we do not ever get there, here's the thing. We will always be anxious. We will always be sidetracked. We will never be at peace. There will never be any joy. And we will be living our lives on somebody else's devotion, somebody else's song, somebody else's podcast and never dealing with the issues of our own hearts. So what do we do? Silence and solitude go together. You will never rest until you learn these two. And the best way to do it is what we used to call and still call an old-fashioned quiet time. Carve out margin in your life. Carve out a place in your life. And I do this every day. This is not legalistic. This is absolutely necessary. Every single day, I need to power down. Every day, I need to turn off the noise. I need to turn off what people are saying I should be or should do and just listen to the master tell me what I am to do. Every day, I have to get in his presence. I sit, I shut off the sounds of everything. And there, with my issues, my struggles, God's word, and listening to his voice, only then can I learn how to rest. For many of you, you've been running so wide open, and it's been so noisy, and you've been trying to drown out the silence of your own soul or the shouts of your soul. Where silence silences the noise, solitude settles my soul and brings me to where I need to be. Silence, solitude. Not easy, is it? Then it gets harder. Sabbath. Sabbath. Not only did Jesus demonstrate silence and solitude in his ministry, but he demonstrated a Sabbath life. Now, for us, Sabbath is very, very, very um, unfamiliar. Most of us don't set aside a day to rest, but we know that this is the only of the Ten Commandments that's actually a discipline. And God says it, it to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why should we remember the Sabbath day? Why should it be holy? Because in verse 11, he tells Moses why. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, did God need to rest? No, God didn't rest because he was exhausted from making everything from nothing. He's God. He rested to give us a model and an example. And then it says, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What does that mean? The word blessed also means delight. 
The Lord delighted in the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Now here's what's key. The word holy means to be set apart and to be different. This day, the Sabbath day, was to be a day of blessing and delight and was to be unlike any other day in the week. This was to be a day that you look forward to. This was a day where you delight in. This was a day that is to be a different kind of pace altogether than every other day. That's what he is saying here. And so as he lays this out, he tells us very clearly this is what it's for. Now, the word Sabbath comes from the word Sabbath, which means to cease, to stop all activity, to do something totally different than you've ever done. That's the word Sabbath. It means that this is something to be different. Now, the Jews celebrated the Sabbath, but unfortunately, they created so many rules around the Ten Commandments that it was hard to follow. For example, God gave Moses 10 commandments. The Jewish religious leaders built 613 commandments around the 10 commandments. And the Sabbath day, which was set apart and given to men as a gift, had 39 restrictions around it, 39. So here's what happened. It was no longer a joy, it was no longer a delight, but it became drudgery for the Jewish people. They could not possibly follow all the rules for the Sabbath day. So they didn't even look forward to it. They didn't want this day because it restricted them in a way that God never meant. Jesus comes along. He, his disciples are walking through a grain field one day and they're plucking the heads of the grain and eating them. And the Pharisees are spying and watching and they're insulted, aghast that he would do such a thing on a Sabbath he goes to synagogue, their church, on Sabbath. What does he do? He teaches and he heals. And he does good things. And they accused him as a lawbreaker because of his way of keeping the Sabbath. Really, Jesus kept the intent of the Sabbath, not the Jewish traditions of men. And Jesus turns it on his, their, its head. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Listen very clearly. Here's what he says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In their minds, they reversed it. The Sabbath was created first, and then man came to honor the Sabbath. No, God created man, and he gave him the Sabbath as a day, listen, to delight in and to be different from all the other days because God made it for them to rest, to rest. And that's what God's called us to. The Sabbath day that God has given to us is not just simply for our physical purposes, but for every bit of us. The Sabbath day is to be a day that is different from all the other days. It is a day that is to have great delight, and it has to be a day that is separate from all other days of the week. So the one thing we do not practice as a church and as a community and as a nation is the Sabbath what does it look like? How, how do we define Sabbath? Let me give you just a couple of things. A Sabbath day is a day of rest and worship. A day of rest and worship. Does that mean we sit around all day and listen to Spotify Christian music and songs and pray and read scripture and our family came doing it? No, that's not at all what it is. A Sabbath day is a day of resting and worshiping. 
It is resting from the things that you normally do the other six days of the week, and it's a time for you to reflect during those times the greatness and the wonderful love and kindness of God. That's what it is. And it's different for every person. For example, there's some people who work with their minds all week, like I do. And on my day of rest, I want to work with my hands. I don't want to work with my head. I want to work with my hands. I love yard work. For me, a great Sabbath day is working in the yard, is beginning to think of God in all that I do, to, to worship him in his nature, to worship him in his, his, his gifts that he's given to us. It's a great Sabbath day for me is to go hunting and to be quiet in a great time of just reflecting and worship. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to take Cooper Brown hunting with me, and we celebrated in rest, and he permanently calls a turkey to rest forever. He killed one. And so it, it was a great day for us. But for people who work with their hands all week, rest for them might be working with their heads. They're sitting in a place and maybe just reading and being still. A Sabbath day might be just walking through the woods. It might be walking in town. It might be playing golf. It might be doing a number of different activities that's different from your day. But the purpose for it all is to rest and to reflect on the goodness of God. That's a Sabbath. And for me, my Sabbath cannot be Sunday my Sabbath is another day because Sunday's a work day. My Sabbaths may be Fridays or Saturdays depending on the events that happen in a week. But it's a day to just wind down and enjoy life and give God glory for everything that is there. Here's the second day. It's a day of resistance. You know what the Sabbath meant for the people of God? It meant this. They were different from all other nations. All the other nations of the world worked seven days a week. The Israelites worked six they work six days a week. If you remember in the book of Nehemiah, when he goes back and helps them rebuild the wall at the end of that, he reestablishes the Sabbath because they were trading with the people of the surrounding countries on the Sabbath. He shut the gates. He said, if you keep coming here, I'm going to go down there and lay my hands on you, which meant a totally different thing in that culture. And he reestablished a day and he's fighting against all of that. Why? Because let me tell you, our culture tells us to run constantly. We've got to constantly move and be about activities. How many of you remember the days of the blue laws? You remember the blue laws? You're showing your age now. The blue laws, when things were not open on Sunday except convenience stores and things like that. And then that was to set apart people for a day of resting. We need to learn how to resist what the culture says we need to do when God has called us to rest. When I was a little kid, my dad always bought things for us, but they were always used. We were poor. We just didn't know it. Dad would buy stuff at a garage sale. He brought home a mini bike one day and he's a mechanic. So he was able to fix it. And a mini bike is just simply a small motorcycle with a motor on it, but it has no gears. It has a throttle and a brake. That's it. Pretty simple. Hit the throttle wide open, brake when you need to stop. And there were three boys in our family, so dad knew he couldn't let us do the throttle all the way. So he put this little thing called a governor on it. And it would allow us to only get to one speed because he knew if we ran it wide open, we would probably be dead. Well, we did that for a long time until we figured out how to take that governor off. 
and we took the governor off and we put our little sister on there and we said, run through the backyard. It was the most beautiful thing. She went right through a wooden fence. It was, was like perfect. This is to you, Peggy. And so this is the governor is what slows us down. Now, here's the thing. The Sabbath is like a governor for us that God gives to us to rest, to reflect, to resist the things of the culture and to put in place this thing called Sabbath. Now, that's hard. <sighs> simplify. It's the fourth thing, simplify. Now, I realize these could be four sermons, but I have to hurry through them. But simplify. Wow, we don't like that. We live in a culture that's filled with consumerism, don't we? We live in a culture that says you've got to have more. And the only way you're going to be happy is to have more. You know what advertisement really is? It's propaganda. It's all it is. It's a lie. It's telling you if you're not going to be happy unless you have this and this and this. You need a new device. You need more cameras. You need more memory. You need more features. You need all these things in order to enjoy these things. And we don't. You know, for the most part, when people buy stuff, it's not so much that they need it. For a lot of people, things aren't just things, they're identities. And if I have these things, then I can identify with the right crowd. Do you know that the number one activity in America today is shopping? Shopping has surpassed worship. Shopping has surpassed worship attendance. If you don't believe me, go to Walmart today. Go to Target. Go to Costco. Go to any places, you will see the stores are packed. The new temple today is Amazon.com. It is a new temple. Our visa statements are the new liturgy. Our worship is the double clicking. Our priests and priestesses are the bloggers and the influencers. Our storehouses are now the storage units. And then our new God is money. It's interesting, it's the only time that Jesus ever in Scripture mentions a God by name, Mammon. And here's what he says. You cannot serve God and money or God and Mammon. He didn't say you shouldn't. He said you cannot. You cannot do it. Why? You cannot do it because they're diametrically opposed to one another. And in Luke's gospel, he says this. One's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Do you know that one-third of all of Jesus' teaching had to do with money and possessions and most of it was not good? So wherever the, the, the prosperity gospel came from, it did not come from Jesus. And what we see here is Jesus is constantly railing against it. Why? Because we can be so easily consumed by what the world says we need. I love what um, Richard Foster wrote in one of his books. He says, simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle and choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions toward what matters most. I love that. Our time, our treasures, our talents, our possessions. Simplicity is just using what God has given us to use them for his good, but not needing anything more than what he gives to us for the necessity of life. So how do we start to simplify? Let me give you three things. Simplify your treasures. Simplify your treasures. Guard your heart about what you need and don't need and give away stuff. Give away stuff. Go through your closets, empty them out, the shirts and the pants and the stuff you don't need anymore. 
Give them away to people who could use them. And so simplify your treasures. I still have a gift card from Bass Pro Shop from my father-in-law. It's almost a year old. Every time I go to Bass Pro Shop with it, I walk around and I look at all the stuff I don't need. And I never buy anything. Chris says, why don't you buy some? I went with her one time and she used it up. She bought stuff. And so her dad's happy and she was happy. But it was just stuff I didn't need. I didn't need that. Now, what she bought, she did need. But, um, and, and none of it was camouflage, I can promise you that. <laughs> Simplify your time. Some, some of us have no margin in a week to spend with God. And we're to simplify our time and give some of that to him. Well, how about this one? Simplify your talents. Wow. I'm going to speak to you young parents right now. Your kids don't have to be in every sport men have created. They don't have to be in every genre of dance that has ever been created. They don't have to be in every single activity with hopes that maybe they'll get a scholarship somewhere along the way. Don't worry about it. If Biden's right, nobody will have to pay for it, except everybody. <laughs> Simplify their talents into a place that pours into the areas they are strong and not necessarily the areas where you're living your life through them. Because what are you teaching them? Life is a hurry. Life is to do everything you can with no pace. So what do we do with a message like this? Because if you're like me, you're overwhelmed right now. If you're like me, you're thinking, ain't nothing easy about this yoke. But there is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next two weeks in silence and solitude. If you're not already doing this, start tomorrow. Find a place where you could power down. Find a place where you can get with God and listen to his spirit speak to you and settle the chatter of your own soul. I want you to do that for the next two weeks, okay? And then in the third week, I want you to have a family meeting and saying, we want to set up a Sabbath, a day where we rest as a family, as we reflect and we worship together. I want to tell you, people who have a Sabbath, the rest of their week is different. And I look forward to my Sabbath because I spend it with my wife. We go walking. We do all kinds of different things except hunting. She will never go hunting with me. And I'm not mad about that. So, <laughs> But set up a Sabbath time where you can say, let's learn to rest and resist. And here's the last one. Simplify. Simplify your life. Really get to a place where you start to say, I don't need all that. Because here's what's happened. If we start with silence and solitude and God begins to deal with our hearts and then we're practicing a Sabbath and we're looking forward to that day, then you begin to realize all the junk and stuff of my life and my time schedules and the things are not necessary. And you begin to eliminate them. And then you begin to wear the yoke of Jesus as you walk with him through all your days. I am way out of time. But God is not. Somebody said, hurry. <laughs> Come see me afterwards and we'll have a conversion. 
So here's what I want to challenge you. Listen, this is hard stuff. It's hard for me. You know why I don't let my wife drive? Because she drives the speed limit. That's why I don't let her drive. Aaron knows her. Are you in here? He's a state trooper. Yeah. Here's what somebody told me the other day about my wife. They said, I just want you to know, Chris drives the speed limit in the left lane. I told her that. She said, it's the speed limit in both lanes. I said, it's not your job to hold them accountable to the speed limit. Stay in the right lane. But I'm just saying, this is stuff that we all struggle with. But if we want to rest, it begins right here. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. As we launch into the summer, right now, right now, begin taking the yoke of Jesus and walking with him. And I promise you, it will bring peace. It will bring joy. Because peace and joy never come to a hurried life. Never. But they will come to a person who's walking with the yoke of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who not only lived perfectly, but Father who died perfectly for our sins. And because he rose on the third day and is alive today, he is qualified to teach us anything and everything he says is true. And Father, for those who are believers and disciples of Jesus, help us put away the craziness of the world and say, Father, this is what you desire. May we walk in this truth. Father, we know that immediately when we leave here that we're going to be challenged against every one of these principles. But Father, may we make a commitment as your people to walk in silence and solitude and a Sabbath and in simplicity. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.